Please stand when you have that for the reading of God's word. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also is faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. You may be seated. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you today asking for you to open our eyes to open our ears and our hearts, that we might receive your word in all its purity, that we would not reject the truths that are present for us here today. We ask that you would help us to understand the glory of Jesus Christ, and that we would, uh, in embracing that glory, uh, order our lives around it, and that we would uh, correct that which must be corrected, that we would uh, point our eyes to Christ, that we would uh, be able to experience the truth that you have given us in this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now to revisit this context of Hebrews, this whole book of Hebrews is about the superiority of Christ, that Christ is much greater uh, than anything else. And Hebrews 1 and 2 were focused on Christ being greater than the angels. Hebrews chapter 1 uh, spoke in detail about how Christ is greater than the angels, and then Hebrews 2 begins to address, well, if that is the case, then why was he made for a little while lower than the angels? And it explains, but then explains that he has been crowned with glory and honor, and it was only a little while that he was lower than the angels. And now in chapter 3, there's a transition made to speaking of Moses, that Christ is also greater than Moses. Now, in the previous two verses, it spoke of Jesus being an apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. So we have that comparison made to Moses. But here, in these verses, uh, the comparison, which was implicit before, that Christ is greater than Moses, is now made explicit that Christ is greater than Moses. And moreover, is made explicit in which way he is greater than Moses. He is greater in glory. And so we will be considering in this passage the glory of Moses, the glory of Christ, and the implications of these things for our lives. So considering, just for a moment, what is glory? Glory is an observable greatness. Okay, God is great. He is glorious because, uh, simply because of his greatness. And as he makes his greatness known, he glorifies himself. As we acknowledge and respond to his greatness, we glorify him. That is why these things are called uh, glorifying. 
Now, God is also inherently glorious. Someone might say, well, how can God be glorious if there's no one to observe him uh, and his greatness? Well, God, anthropomorphically speaking, is capable of observing himself, and so he is still great even when no one is watching, even before the world began. Uh, God is great, and he is glorious in his greatness. Now, there's a distinction to be made there between greatness, this just inherent awesomeness and power and majesty, and then the glory of that, the uh, observability of that, the expression of that in glory. It speaks of Jesus Christ in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, talking of him as the radiance of the glory of God. This is something that is expressed and, and observable. Now, this passage also speaks of honor. Uh, honor is a close synonym of glory. Now, honor, instead of focusing on uh, the observable expression of that greatness, focuses on that greatness being demonstrated by or acknowledged by uh, gifts or, uh, or sacrifices, uh, words of praise. And so these are, these are close synonyms, but have different connotations, one being on an observable demonstration, the other being on uh, gifts and sacrifices. And these are things that the author of Hebrews has combined before. You notice in chapter 2, verse 7, it said, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with what? Glory and honor. In verse 9, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Uh, he's put these together before glory and honor. So when he transitions from talking about the glory of Moses versus the glory of Christ, and then transitions to uh, the honor of the house versus the honor of the builder, he does so without explanation because he has already tied the two together, one implying the other, in the previous passage. Now, it's very interesting that we should consider uh, the glory of Moses because the glory of Moses is considered elsewhere in Scripture in 2 Corinthians 3. And we'll be turning to that a number of times today as well as uh, the next time that I'm in Hebrews because it applies to the, the passage after this as well. In 2 Corinthians, what is in question is the glory of Paul's ministry, his, his New Testament ministry, his New Covenant ministry, his apostleship. And it is interesting that here we have just spoken of Jesus as an apostle. And so in 2 Corinthians 3, there's a comparison made between the glory of Moses' ministry and Paul's apostleship. And it's a very similar comparison that's made here in Hebrews 3, is this comparison between Christ's apostleship and Moses' glory. Now, uh, many might say that glory is something uh, in belonging to God is not something that humans should seek after. But the reality is that we have been built with an innate desire to not only experience the glory of God, but even to obtain glory. You see this throughout Scripture, where Jesus commands, even in John 5, that people are to seek the glory of God rather than the glory of man. And so it is something that is to be desired. You know, if we were to make, uh, you know, a hierarchy of needs similar to the ones that people, that people typically make, where 
is it self-actualization that's at the top? We might put glory at the top of our, our hierarchy of needs. This is what human beings long for most deeply, is for glory, to both experience it and to obtain it. And it is right for us to desire this glory. The conquistadors were known for desiring gold, God, and glory. And I don't know if any of them actually use that phrase or if that's the label that we've put on them after the fact. But in considering that, consider gold. Uh, gold fades away, and we are to store up treasures in heaven. And what is that treasure in heaven? Well, it is the glory of God. And if we are to desire God, and what is that experience of God that we are to receive in heaven, it is his glory as it is experienced in Jesus Christ. And so rather than uh, gold, God, and glory, it would be right for our battle cry to be glory, glory, glory. Uh, this is something that we should desire. It is something that we should seek after as Christ commanded us to. It is something that we should want. And so unlike the conquistadors that were trying to find that glory, trying to find the short path to India and heading all the way around the world in the wrong direction, uh, we should know where is this glory that we should seek? What is this glory that we should seek? In order that we might seek it rightly and not down the long path, not down the wrong path, but down the path that we ought to. Uh, looking to Christ rather than to other distractions away from this glory of his. So let us consider each of these glories in turn, both the glory of Moses and uh, the glory of Jesus Christ. So first of all, uh, the glory of Moses. If you remember the last sermon that, we, uh, that I preached here in Hebrews 3, I pointed out the significance of this phrase that Moses was faithful in all God's house. If you remember, that came from Numbers chapter 12. In Numbers chapter 12, God said, and he said, hear my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. So we talked about that importance of Christ as an apostle, uh, being one who is delivering the message of God to uh, be communicating with God face to face in a way that's greater than even Moses. And that's the part of the comparison that's being made here. It says, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord was kindled against him, and he departed. Okay, so Moses speaks face to face with the Lord. Uh, Christ is faithful in God's house in an even greater way, and so he communes with the, with the Father more directly than even Moses did. Now, there is something important to the passage that we are in, these next two verses, too, about that communion, because where was it that Moses was communing with the Lord? It was particularly in the tent of meeting. In Exodus, in Exodus 33, Verse 7, it says, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Now throughout Exodus, this tent is referred to uh, variously and alternating between 
the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And there, so there's some debate as to whether or not here in Exodus 33, and at this point in Exodus, whether or not it really refers to that t- tabernacle that was created later in Exodus, because it would seem that this must be some different tent since it comes earlier in Exodus. However, it's quite possible that this is spoken of just describing the activity of Moses, not in any particular uh, chronological sequence of events. And so I am of the opinion and lean towards the interpretation that this is actually referring to the tabernacle that he would later build in the, in the chapters of Exodus. But regardless, the point is, uh, Moses communes with God uh, in a tent of meeting. And it is through uh, this particular house of God, as a, a tabernacle or a temple is, a house of God, that Moses is able to experience that glory of God and commune with him face to face. And so this comparison between Christ and Moses continues uh, just in that notion of him being faithful in the house, because to be faithful in the house is to experience the glory in the house, communing with God in the house. And so in Exodus 34, it speaks of this, speaks of this glory. It says in 34, 34, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil. So he would have a veil over his face and remove the veil until he came out and he put the veil back on. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. And so there was a a glory that Moses experienced and displayed even uh, from this communing with God face to face, from him being faithful in all God's house. Now, uh, many of us look at this and we see this as uh, uh, punctuated events where Moses would go in and his face would shine for a little while and then it would fade away. Now, the reason why a lot of us see it that way is because 2 uh, Corinthians 3 often in, is often uh, translated as speaking of a glory that is fading away. However, I want to show you something, and I'm going to be going back to Hebrews, or excuse me, to 2 Corinthians 3 quite a bit, so if you want to stick a bookmark in there or you're part of your bulletin, that would be totally appropriate to do. But here... In verse 13, where it says, Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Uh, There's something here in Greek that you don't see in English, and that is that glory, in all this passage, it's about glory and repeatedly talking about the glory of of Moses and his ministry and on his face, uh, is a feminine word. Okay, glory glory is feminine. English doesn't have as much gender as other languages, but Greek has gender and glory is feminine. And then when it talks about this being brought to an end, it uses an article that's either noun, or sorry, either masculine or neuter. And so what's being spoken of here is not the glory that is uh, ending or being brought to an end. It's speaking of something else. And I think it would be right for us to consider uh, the, the outcome of that glory or the outworking of that glory, or something else other than the glory. But the glory itself of Moses' face, not ending. In fact, uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish tradition claims that Moses' face continued to shine even after he was dead. Now, 
that's not to say that that's true, because what evidence do they have that that's the case? But what I'm saying is that, what I'm pointing out is that Jewish tradition did not consider that idea at odds with their own scriptures, right? That Moses' face uh, would not shine just on punctuated events, but actually continued to shine throughout the course of his ministry, and then even beyond his death. Now, consider how artists depict Moses, and consider uh, how significant his glory must have really been. Uh, artists, when they try to show Moses, how do they depict him? Either it'll be with a staff in his hand and his hand spread like this, so you know that he's parting the, parting the Red Sea. You know, artists try to pick the most distinctive features of someone in order so you know who they are or what they are. Or he might be holding the Ten Commandments, and that lets you know, ah, this is Moses, he's holding the Ten Commandments. But how often do you see an artist depict him as having a shining face? But for the majority of his ministry, this was his defining visible feature, was that he was wearing a veil that was covering up the shining that is coming from his face. And uh, there is one artist that has depicted him uh, close to this way, one famous artist. Many of you may be familiar with Michelangelo's uh, depiction of Moses, where he has the horns. You all know what I'm talking about? The, that that um, statue of Moses where he has horns by Michelangelo. Uh, the reason that is is because the word for horn in Hebrew sounds very much like the word for shine. And so in the Latin Vulgate, in Exodus 34 that we just read, it said instead of him coming down from the mountain or coming out from communing with God with his, horn, uh, with his face shining, it says with his face horned. And so... Uh, so Michelangelo depicted him in this particular way. Now, he was, he was so close, <laughs> because I really think this is an excellent way to depict, the, to depict Moses, is with, uh, with that shining face, uh, not a horned face, but a shining face, uh, coming, down, uh, coming down from communion with God. And so this really is the, the distinctive feature of Moses, this this comparison of the glory of Moses to the glory of angels, it's not that the author of Hebrews is picking some arbitrary things that the, that the Jews hold highly. Uh, he is picking the most glorious thing to the angels uh, in all their splendor and brightness. Moses, in all his literal splendor, literal brightness, not just figuratively we are talking about here. And he's comparing this glory, this visible glory, to another visible glory this glory of Jesus Christ. And so what is the glory of Jesus Christ? Well, as I mentioned a minute ago, it said in Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. However, I believe there are reasons to not take this as referring to Christ's inherent glory that he has as the Son of God. Uh, so first of all, it explains in Hebrews 2.10 uh, that he brings his many sons to glory. So it speaks of him here and elsewhere in Scripture as sharing a glory with his people. And yet in Isaiah 48.11, it says that God does not share his glory with any other. So that glory that is inherent to God, that is only his alone, and that Christ has existed with for all eternity with as the Son of God, I don't believe it's speaking of that glory. Uh, rather, it is speaking of uh, the glory of um, uh, the glory that he has in his office, uh, 
having been, having been glorified by God. Not something that he was uh, born with, but rather something that he was uh, granted by the Father through his ministry. And so let me, let me show you a few passages that speak of this. Uh, Revelation, excuse me, 2 Peter 17, 2, 2 Peter 1.17 says, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, so this is a glory that's not inherent to him, but one he is receiving in his office through uh, the baptism. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So it speaks here of Christ's glory being uh, given to him by the Father. And then, later on, we see this glory at the transfiguration. It says in Matthew 17, verse 2, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So here we have a, a visible glory displayed to the disciples, showing uh, what glory Christ is being given in this office. And then uh, later, as his ascension, he is lifted up, and there's no explicit statement that uh, speaks of, um, uh, of a shining, but we do see later on in Revelation this description of Jesus. Uh, Revelation 12 says, then I turn, Revelation 1.12 says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And this is speaking here of Jesus Christ. And so, as Hebrews said, he sits down on the right at the right hand of the majesty on high that he's crowned with glory and honor. These are things that happened at his ascension. And then Revelation uh, explains the vision that John had of him. And how does he appear? He appears glorious, visibly glorious. Uh, this is the glory of Jesus Christ. It is a glory that's even greater than the glory of Moses, his face shining to some degree. Uh, Christ, uh, absolutely bright, his hair, his face shining like the sun, his feet, can you imagine uh, looking at someone whose face is shining like the sun? Uh, you can barely look at the sun, right? You shouldn't look at the sun for extended periods of time, but to, to have that brightness up close, incredible. So we have here this comparison between the glory of Moses and this glory of Jesus. And so beyond that, it gives us a more um, a, a bigger description of that of that comparison. It says, "As much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself." So there's this comparison given. Well, what's the difference between the glory of Moses and the glory of Jesus? Well, it's the difference between the glory of a house and the glory of its builder. Well, what kind of glory does a house have, and what kind of glory does a builder have? Well, a builder has a house, you know, a beautiful house has some glory. Uh, the builder, though, has a greater glory because the builder is the one who created the house. The builder has the primary glory, and the house has a secondary glory. Okay, the house is 
its glory is derivative of the builder's glory as he has, as he has created this thing. And so the comparison here is not between two kinds of, or two glories that are of the same species, one being, you know, greater in quantity or quality or purity than the other. Rather, these are two species of glory, one being transcendent and a different category and a higher category than the other, just as the builder of a house has an entirely different kind of glory than the glory of a house itself. You know, in the same way, uh, humans are made, in a sense, glorious because we are made in the image of God. But that is entirely different than God himself being glorious. Uh, he's, the category of glory is one is derivative of the other. God is glorious. We, uh, in a derivative fashion, may be called uh, glorious as we represent God. Now, what's being said here is that if Moses is, has the glory of a house and Christ has the glory of a builder of a house, uh, this is a very, very surprising statement because what do you think of Moses as? Moses is the one who built the house, is he not? Moses is the one who built the tabernacle, who made the place for God to dwell. And yet, this is turning it around and saying that he's actually not the builder of the house. Uh, he is part of the house itself. And this is how the Bible describes, uh, describes the people of God. Uh, later on in verse 6, it says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. Uh, what is the house that is being considered here? It's the kingdom of God. It's the people a part of it. Uh, the elect of every age, and that includes Moses, that ultimately he is not the builder of the house, but he is rather part of the house. It says in 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 5, you yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. We're being built up as a spiritual house by Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the builder, and we are, we are the building that is being created. And so one who might object and say, well, wait, didn't Moses build the house? What is in view here is a far greater house than the tabernacle. It is uh, the congregation of the living God. It is the church. It is the people of God, the elect of all ages. And while I believe uh, Hebrews 8 speaks of the incarnation, it's worth observing, rather than the, uh, the people of God, it's worth observing that Hebrews 8 identifies Moses' tabernacle to only be a copy and a shadow of the greater heavenly one. That's true of Christ's body as he came and dwelt and tabernacled among us, and it's true of the church where he dwells as well. They are lesser temples. Now, another objection someone might have is they might point to Paul, and they might see what it says of Paul in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, and it speaks of him actually building the church. And it says, uh, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. And so he places himself as God's fellow worker. So could it not be said that oh, Paul has the glory of the builder? Well, Paul is operating in a ministerial way, right? Once again, his, he is, it is a derivative glory. Just as the, the master who runs a project might command a servant, and the servant can be said to have built it in an instrumental way, in a ministerial way, he cannot be said to have built it in an autocratic or a magisterial way, right? So 
Christ is the builder of the church. Even though ministers of God may have some role in, in building the church, that is only in a secondary way, in an instrumental way. And similarly, if someone might object and ask, well, doesn't it say that Jesus is the chief cornerstone in Ephesians 2.20 and elsewhere? Isn't he part of the church rather than the builder? Well, yes, he identifies with his brothers, as it says here in Hebrews 2. Uh, there's no objection there. But that, his glory in the house does not exclude his glory over the house as the master builder. And so it's a, a wonderful thing that Jesus is both identifies with the house and over the house as its builder. But uh, this does not exclude his, his glory as the builder of the house. Now, uh, it continues on here and says, uh, for the glory... Let me back up for just a second. Uh, consider, consider what this means for your life, right? If you are, uh, if there's a glory of the church and of this house, and it's easy to be distracted by that as they were in their time of the glory of Moses rather than the glory of Christ, what does that, what does that mean for you and me? Well, consider the various ways that someone might be distracted by the glory of the house rather than the builder. Uh, first of all, there is uh, the kind of worship that we engage in. Right? Rather than worshiping Christ, we might be fixated on the various uh, things that Christ has given us. And many people in the past and even now have been distracted by, uh, we talked this morning in Sunday school about baptism, considering that something that, that saves rather than Christ saving and baptism uh, as, a, as a means of grace accomplishing salvific purposes in our life, but not actually being that which, which justifies us and makes us right by God, that appeal to God for a good conscience, uh, only through Jesus Christ. It's very easy to get uh, distracted by those things and engage in sacerdotalism where you believe the thing itself is what is supplying you with grace uh, rather than God doing this through the means that he has appointed and consider also how people can be distracted by the various builders, the various ministers, right? You may uh, get caught up in celebrity Christian culture, and how many people do that? How many people wrongfully put their trust in men rather than recognizing that uh, they are just ministers? Their glory is one way less than Christ, and rather than, uh, rather than considering the glory of the one that they are supposed to be pointing to, they are considering the glory of those particular men themselves. And they disappoint. Uh, they so often disappoint. Uh, I'm sure uh, many of you can think of several who have ended up disqualifying themselves from ministry and really devastating a lot of people. Now, if your trust is in those ministers, is in the, these ministerial builders rather than the great builder himself, uh, yes, you are going to be disappointed. And there was even, uh, there's, you might know who I'm talking about. There was something controversial recently where one pastor uh, who's respected by many, you know, even here, even in our circles, uh, who was advocating for attending gay weddings as a, as a way to support your friends. Uh, and, and that this, would, this celebration would not be at odds with what Christ has commanded. Uh, this is a, 
otherwise known as very good minister who recently said that. If, you're, if your trust is in these ministers, if your trust and your hope is in them, uh, you will find yourself very disappointed frequently. And then one more I'll throw in here is your finances. Uh, a lot of you know this is something that's uh, dear to me. Finances, a lot of times people will give to ministries out of a sense of direct obligation to the ministry as though the gospel is coming directly from them. But the reality is the gospel is coming from God, and what is owed is owed to God. And so when you give, to give rightly, not being distracted by the glory of a particular ministry, but recognizing the glory of the one over that, the master builder, uh, is to give out of an obligation to God. And the implication for ministers then is to not charge for ministry as though that ministry is coming from you, but to accept uh, the willing supply of fellow workers who, who are eager to work along with you and financially bearing that burden. Uh, there's a big difference between those two. And so you, as you give, you know, have that in mind that you're giving out of an obligation to God, not out of an obligation to a minister or the ministry, uh, which is just distracting from the glory of that master builder and placing it on the house. Right? Who would go around and uh, praise a house? You know, I've, I've, I've seen Falling Waters before. You're famous, that, that uh, famous house by uh, the architect Frank Lloyd Wright. And, you know, there's plaques, places, and stuff talking about him. But to go around and, you know, let's imagine someone might interview the house and say, well, how do you do it? What's your secret? You know, this, it's, it's bizarre to think of, and yet that is what a lot of people are doing in the house of God. You know, they are praising the house as though it were the builder, and they're exchanging one glory for another. And it's very, uh, very confused. So it says here, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Okay. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So the point is that if, the build, if every house is built by someone, there's someone greater than Moses. If Moses is part of the house, and all houses are built by someone, then there must be someone greater than Moses. The idea being, from this previous section, that, well, maybe a house only has less glory than its builder if it has a builder, right? And there are some houses that don't have builders, and then he corrects that and says, no, every house has a builder. And so if something is part of the house, and you acknowledge that Moses is part of the house, there's something that is greater than him. And what is that that's greater than him? It is the builder that is greater than him. And the builder of all things is God. Well, how does God build all things? Uh, he builds all things in that way that I have said, magisterially, using other things as his instruments, but ultimately, he is the one who is building. So 1 Corinthians 3, 5 says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to teach. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. So the one who's planting and the one who's watering, those are instruments. They are not God who is giving the growth. God is the one who is actually building this house. And then, it, you know, that analogy of um, agriculture, it then transitions into talking about the building. God is the one who is ultimately building that building. It says in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. 
Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And so you might think of your own work as, being, as coming from your power, but ultimately it is only as God works through people that their power has any, any advantage, any success. So here in, um, in Hebrews, when it talks about this house and God building the house, it's speaking of him as being the ultimate one that blesses these various works, whether it be Moses or any other minister or any ministry. And it does have in mind, in particular, uh, this house of God. It's not speaking of God as creator of all things, although it's true, he's created all things, he's built all things. But the particular word, uh, Greek word that's used here, kataskuazo, uh, uh, that refers to, in particular, construction. And so the idea here is not just that God makes everything, but any work of man, any construction of man, is something that ultimately has been uh, brought about by God's work uh, through others. And so if this is the case, then uh, Moses does not have this great glory that people might imagining, envisioning him you know, as being bright and visibly glorious, but rather Christ has that greater glory, him being the one who created. Now you might see this and be confused because it says, uh, but the builder of all things is God. Well, how does that advance the author's purpose unless when he says God he is speaking specifically of Jesus Christ. And a lot of people who say the Bible never calls Christ God directly. It's not true. You just have to, you just have to look a little. <laughs> and it uh, is very direct. Uh, it's, this argument does not make the same kind of sense if this is speaking of the Father. This only really makes sense if it's speaking of Christ. Why is Christ greater than Moses? Because he is the builder. The builder of all things is God. It is Christ who is building. And this shouldn't be surprising because in Hebrews 1.8, speaking of Christ, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Uh, the author of our book here is not, uh, he does not shy away from directly calling Christ God. So this is speaking here of this, uh, of this that Christ has done uh, to the house. Now, I would like to consider uh, what this means for us and, and glory and what kind of uh, glory we should be obtaining. Well, first of all, uh, the glory of Moses is not an obtainable glory. It's not something that we should be looking for. Uh, you see in 2 Corinthians 3, it talks about him wearing a veil over his face, basically making it inaccessible to others. This is not, this is not a glory that is... Uh, that is for others, but rather Christ, his glory, is one that is, that is for us. It's one that he shares with us according to chapter 2, verse 10. It's one that he shares with us according to Romans chapter 8. It's something that is, that is actually attainable, this, this glory that he has been given in his office. It is something he offers those. And so if you have the heart that you should have that seeks after the glory of God, you should be looking for glory from Christ, not from Moses, not from man, not from any human ministry, but rather from the builder himself, from God himself. You should be looking for that glory. And so how do you find this glory? Well, first of all, uh, you turn to Christ. You turn to him. Uh, it speaks in scripture of turning to him in order to see this glory. Here in 2 Corinthians 3, it says, 
Uh, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So how does one receive the glory of the Lord? This passage tells us right here. Uh, If you're reading the Old Covenant, if you're looking to the law, if you're looking to something else that God is using for his purposes, but not actually actually Christ himself, then your heart will remain hardened. But it is only as you turn to Christ, it is only through Christ that is taken away. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. If you want to be... uh, If you want to be restricted from the glory of God, you turn away from Christ. If you want that veil removed so that you can see that glory, uh, you turn to him. Now, there may be people here who do not know the Lord. Um, It's certainly the case that kids grow up, they don't know the Lord until they turn and believe. And so uh, if you do not know the Lord, know that you cannot experience the greatness that, uh, that God has made mankind to experience and obtain that glory of God. You cannot have it without turning to the Lord. The only way that your hardness of heart can be removed, the only way that you can experience that glory is by turning to Jesus Christ, abandoning worldly things and turning to him only for your salvation. And so with this, we should behold Christ and turning to him away from other things, we behold him. John 17 says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Christ here in this high priestly prayer says that he has given his people his glory and then prays that they are able to see his glory. How do you receive this glory of God? How do you experience it? It's by looking to him and beholding his glory. And so you will not have any fulfillment of this apart from looking to him. Even you in your Christian life, though you may have been given this glory, he is praying that you would behold and you would see this glory, that you would look more to him. And how do you do that? He has revealed himself through his word. Uh, Go to him earnestly uh, to his word to know more about him in order that you might behold that glory and enjoy it completely. And then In addition to uh, turning to Christ, beholding him, we must abandon all other glories. uh, John 5, Jesus speaking to his opponent says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? And then he makes a comparison to Moses. Do not think that I will accuse you to to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. They've set their hope in Moses. They've set their hope in their own law-keeping. They've set their hope in, in things that were designed to point to Christ, but not in Christ himself. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how now would you believe my words? So we must turn away from men. It doesn't matter whether it be religious things, as are in uh, view here, whether it be religious men, religious ministries, 
or whether it be the glory in the world that you seek, from praise from man in your workplace or elsewhere, if these things occupy your mind and compete for the glory of Christ, you must turn away from these things and seek the glory of Christ. How can you believe? How can you believe in Jesus if you seek the glory that comes from man? That's what Jesus asks there in John 5. And then, uh, through all these things, as we've seen especially in this previous chapter, we have the privilege of suffering with Christ in order that we might be glorified with him. Romans 8 says that if we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. That includes uh, resisting temptation. It includes uh, bearing with persecution. It includes all the same sufferings that he encountered. Uh, yet we do not have to bear the wrath of God because he has bared that in our place. And so this is, a, this is a way, not that we merit this glory, because the whole point of turning away from Moses is turning away from, from a sense that the law is the way that one could have glory, as though that were some kind of attainable glory to, by your own law-keeping, by your own merit, uh, receive the glory that Moses had as he walked with the Lord. Uh, no, uh, that is not the way. The only way is through Jesus Christ. It is only through him, and he has given us the privilege, not the way of, of meriting our uh, status with him, but the privilege of suffering with him in order that we might be glorified with him. And so uh, he calls us today into suffering, as is the point even here in Hebrews 3. This is the point as we go on. It says, uh, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And it talks about the importance of, of resisting temptation and bearing with persecution. These are things that Christ invites us into, that we have the privilege of experiencing, not the, uh, not the curse of experience, but the privilege of experiencing those same things which he went through in order that we might have his glory, a glory far greater than the glory of Moses, a glory far greater than one that uh, was veiled but rather we with unveiled faces get to experience in the here and now, and then more especially when we stand before him face to face, not just hearing of his words and, uh, and experiencing it that way, but one day we will stand face to face with him and even visibly see his gloriousness. And when we see him, we'll be made like him. Uh, and that is the great hope of the Christian life. Our, our glory is not, it's not some glory that we get from Jesus, but it is, it is Christ himself is our glory, and he is the great reward that we have now and even more fully is awaiting for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the glory of Jesus Christ, the one who has built the house. We ask that we would turn our face away from all other glories, from the glory of man and uh, behold Jesus Christ, him and his glory, that we would read more about him, that we would experience it, and that we would look forward to the day when it is made uh, perfectly visible before us. We ask that that would fill us with an endurance and a zeal and a joy that would uh, resist all temptation and persecution and struggle and trial. In Jesus' name, amen.